What is going on, friends of the Rockney cast? For this episode, we're going to discuss the philosophy of Mike Tyson and Aristotle. To explain why you need both, in particular through the lens of a college education, and to navigate your way through reality. We're also going to talk about some of the mind-blowingly bad public policy that comes out of a lot of universities that is now doing a lot of damage to our country. We're going to share with you a very humbling experience that I had in which I relied totally on theory and I didn't adequately rely upon experience, but I learned a lot from this one thing of experience. And we'll talk a little bit about this whole money ball thing and we're going to kind of swing the pendulum back so that we can have some nuance to the Rockney cast. So a lot of you may be asking, why the hell am I talking about Mike Tyson and Aristotle? Am I trying to be like an overly creative liberal arts major writing my first team paper, like, you know, while I'm smoking a joint? Oh my God, what would happen if like Aristotle met Mike Tyson? You know, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think this is a very important topic because at least in particular, one of Mike Tyson's quotes has really resonated with me. And I've actually thought about this a lot in my own mind. And I'm going to share with you why actually Aristotle and Mike Tyson aren't actually all that different in terms of their modus vivendi, as it were, their, you know, approach to life. But I, I cite Aristotle to kind of talk about more of the abstractions and whether those are valuable or not. This is an important topic, and believe it or not, this is the kind of shit that goes through my head on a daily basis. I got to get it out to you or else it rattles around in my head. I got to get it out. I got to get it out. Um, you're like, oh, my God, do you have issues? Well, maybe. We'll see. Well, you're listening to the Rocky cast. You like to listen. So maybe you got issues. So let's talk about the quote that I like from Mike Tyson, and it is his most famous quote, and you've probably heard it, which is, everyone has a plan for something until they get punched in the face. Now, I've looked for other quotes by Mike Tyson to see whether they rival his level of intensity, his profundity, his just spot-on analysis of this thing called reality that was probably more succinctly put in any other quote of modern philosophy that I've ever seen. You know, we had done a podcast on the philosophy of Bruce Lee through the lens of his daughter, Shannon Lee, and Bruce was kind of this intellectual that did read in great detail and that matched this philosophy of life uh, with his actual active approach to living. And in some respects, that's similar. I have not done a deep dive into the reading list of Mike Tyson. Um, my assumption is, is that it is relatively limited. Um, but that said, that does not underscore, and it could be very in-depth. I, I don't know. All I know is, is that Mike Tyson is an incredibly wise person. And if I had to choose between, and if I actually had to choose to run my state 
And I had to choose between Mike Tyson, that is the highest form of Mike Tyson, and a professor from English of, of Harvard. I would probably choose Mike Tyson. There's a caveat there in which I might choose the professor from Harvard if I had to choose between the two. Now, Mike, there are a few issues that he has, I think, especially when he was younger. But I think as represented by that quote, kind of a platonic ideal of what we think Mike Tyson is, I think this quote is so important. Why? Because so many of the problems that we're dealing with in this country, the solutions are offered in the academy. They're offered by people who are in this secluded space that are studying the likes of Aristotle and Plato and Derrida, the modern, you know, the modern French philosopher, and Michel Foucault. And they're studying the great literature. You might have some English professor that studied Emily Dickinson or Jane Eyre. And maybe they've even written, I mean, probably all read Simone de Beauvoir. And I'm sure there's some great philosopher that the academics already know, and it's from 1992. And the next third stage, maybe there's a fifth stage feminist out there that can identify systems of oppression that we may not even be able to see. And so, as many of you know, like maybe, maybe, maybe some of you think like, oh my God, do you have issues with Academy? No, actually I don't because I'm actually, okay. So even though the Academy can be this place of like completely untethered from reality, I actually think there's room for that. And that it's okay to have these philosophers as long as, and these people that are kind of separated in some respects, as long as certain conditions are met and we are placing what they mean, what their purpose is, what their relevance is in proper context. So I will explain why the professors, and it is important, and I'm actually an out-and-out advocate of going to an undergraduate institution for a lot of different reasons. And I do think there is a need for the professors to lead us through Emily Dickinson and to help us to ask the questions and to get some theoretical framework to approach to life and to have some sense of history and to be turned on to certain poetry, there is value there. But you must know its limitations in terms of how much weight we're going to put on policy recommendations that arise from the academy, because I place very little weight on those. And those policies have done a lot of damage to our country and they have not made us a healthier country and in some ways they have enfeebled the country. Now, even within that context of my, my critique of academia, I think it could kind of go either way in terms of how it's approached. And I kind of support more of a classical approach to that 
but it'll also talk about a direction that it's not inevitable that they're totally untethered from reality. I mean, I think about, for example, a professor like Victor David Hansen. If you want to know how I think on something, just open him up. <laughs> and his brain, for better or for worse, fires almost to a one-to-one -one correspondence of mine. Another kind of who I call anti-philosopher, a philosopher of reality, as it were, is Nassim Taleb. If you want to know, and now he's kind of an asshole. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do a podcast on Nassim Taleb and try to summarize his work. And I can nearly guarantee you that if I interviewed him, he would say I got it all wrong. He's just kind of a cantankerous asshole, and I still love him. I, I think he's probably of all the people that I've read in the last 35 years is, is the most uh, kind of idealized form of the one that can navigate the abstraction plus reality as we see it. So let's talk about this question of Mike Tyson's ethos of a plan until you get punched in the face. And I'll sort of describe a, um, a experiment that I did unintentionally about a month ago with a plan that I had to have a little bit of leisure that when connected to reality turned out to be a lot hairier proposition than I had ever thought. Because I think this is the huge limitation that we see over and over and over again from recently college, college educated graduates and I think part of, you know, when I talked about yesterday, part of the limitation of academia is, is the following. The description of reality or stories as they've already occurred and the after effect detached um, observation of what went on can be very complicated. But the experience of swimming through reality and actually moving history and actually implementing policy and actually developing jobs and actually making, building and selling things is infinitely more complex and infinitely, maybe not infinitely, but significantly more complex than the idea. And I can illustrate that in at least at least two ways that I think are important for us to process. So let's talk about if you're in a boat and you are going to get a consultant and you want to get across from the Atlantic Ocean and you have a seaworthy vessel. And what is the goal of that vessel? It is literally the description of what you have to do is you merely have to get across the ocean. And you have to go from the East Coast to the West Coast. That's what you got to do. To do it, to actually do it, is infinitely more complex. I would almost say maybe exponentially more complex in that you have to navigate the um, direction 
the, the physics of the waves, the ballast in your boat. I had a friend who actually went, he's kind of a, he's a liberal arts guy that's very creative, but wanted to be a sea captain or a ship captain. So he actually went to the Great Lakes Merchant Marine. And he talked about all these super complicated equations for calculation of ballast navigation, like how complicated it was. To, to do the thing is infinitely definite, more difficult than the description of the thing. Now, I don't want to, I don't want this podcast to be considered some sort of, you know, I'm still at the faculty lounge. They would say, oh, what are you saying? That we should just all, let's go to high school and, you know, just never go to college and just eliminate the whole goddamn thing. Is that what you're saying, Cole? That there's no value to education? No, I'm not. Because the other thing and the limitation of my belief in terms of the benefits of reality is that you learn the thing better and you learn the thing more effective when you experience it and when you do it. And this is where we get into how close Aristotle actually is to the work of Mike Tyson. And no, I'm not trying to do a creative liberal arts exposition. I actually think this. Aristotle's theory of vocation is that if you want to be a thing, a someone or a occupation, you must repeatedly do the thing in order to become the thing that you want to become. So if you want to be a singer, you got to sing. If you want to be a painter, you must paint. And the value in painting and interacting with reality in the painting process is significantly more valuable than the art of studying the process. I don't know what the history of Andy Warhol was or some of the great painters like Pablo Picasso. I don't think most of them went to like, you know, undergraduate institutions and studied painting like that. They may train under a master. They may have engaged with other painters in kind of a salon. But my guess is that most of the great painters were similar to like Ernest Hemingway, who did not go to undergraduate, knew he wanted to be a writer. So he started writing and went out and worked for a newspaper for a year or two and wanted to become an experiential writer. And so went to Europe and experienced reality as it is and became one of the great writers of all time. As opposed to studying, I mean, if you want to look at, the other day I was on YouTube and there was some, some guy that was debating um, Charlie Kirk. And he was saying that the greatest ideas of the 20th century came out of academia. I'm like, okay, okay, name me the top PhD writers. Just name him. Very limited. Now, I don't need to criticize you PhDs. I think there's value to this. And ultimately, I do think there's value uh, Victor David Hansen has a PhD, so I'm not discounting those. But what I'm saying is, is there's a limitation to how much you can know about a thing if you're not actually doing the thing. Because I think the recent trend in college education is to teach about the experience of historical victims and to reaffirm your identity as a victim and then to look outside of yourself, that is to blame, to try to solve and remedy 
your status as a victim. So what's happening lately in college education is that instead of teaching you to become more, because I think there is a model incorporating the ethos of Mike Tyson and Aristotle, there is a model where the goal should be, the stated purpose should be to strengthen, to prepare, to make you more resilient, to teach you how to enhance and strengthen your mind, to be able to write, to be able to think, to be able to critique, to be able to analyze. The ability to identify within, the ability to enhance your spirit, to interact with the cosmos, to rest and to identify your breath, to enhance your body. The thing I love about Mike Tyson is that there's nothing more physical than the body of a boxer or a wrestler. And I think that, you know, I never really thought of um, Conor McGregor as some sort of towering intellectual, but I remember looking at him on the Netflix special, and I wish I would have known Conor when he was more of a top star, but I just couldn't help but think about Mike Tyson as I was watching that on Netflix in which the kind of late stage career of Conor McGregor was identified. And what I loved about that is this, this is kind of like this great Teddy arena, Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. You, know, you can have all the theories you want about what's a better fighting style. What's who's likely to win. But ultimately when the rubber hits the road, you have to compete. And that is the way in which you establish which idea is validated and which idea is weak. Who's the better fighter? Let them go, establish the rules, and then evaluate after that. And the reason why I think this topic is so important about the limitation of, and I'll, and I'll, you know, a lot of times that you think I'm criticizing another, I'll share kind of an own slightly embarrassing experience that I had that perfectly demonstrates and exemplifies this this Tao of Mike Tyson in terms of reality punching you in the face. You can have a plan and then you get punched and you it knocks you into your senses. But here's the key to this. I learned a lot and me being the philosopher of life, I was able to absorb its wisdom and be humbled, which which reality does. When you're out in the world, no one gives a shit about you. And so let me just illustrate this little plan meeting reality and being punched in the face as Mike Tyson counsels against. About a month and a half ago, I lived here in Northeast Iowa. Uh, my girlfriend and my daughter and I were going to go tubing. Where it just as it sound, you get an old tube. Historically, there were inner tubes from a tire and you go you know, get a cooler and get your bikini on if you're a if you're a woman or you're a babe. If you're a dude, you if you're like me, you put on your sun hat and kind of look like a dad bod. And it's a lot of fun. It's fun for about three hours. If you're more than three hours, it's probably not so much fun. So we went to this spring in Decorah, which is just north of town. And we were going to have a nice little two or three hour float. And we were going to go basically right near the city limits of Decorah, uh, my hometown. I no longer live there, but I get there quite a bit. So we get in the water 
And we had talked to her sister, my girlfriend's sister, and she said, oh, yeah, it's about a two-hour float. And so we're like, great, that's about what we thought. So we had a little plan. And we were going to get this destination called, it's called the Chattahoochee. So I, mean, I, I never did this in high school, but, you know, Decora has, we literally have way down yonder at the Chattahoochee, not making this stuff up. We were going to end at the Chattahoochee. We had this plan to go, which literally means just putting your tube in and then going to the end. That's it. And what happened, it was, and this is basically on me, this simple plan that I had turned infinitely more complex. And I was humbled by this experience. As we got in, and I basically didn't bring any water. I bought a lot of drinks, like hard seltzers, bush light, but virtually no water. It was like just two hours. So we circuited in the water and we're having a lot of fun and we're going along. We're like, oh, where's Chattahoochee? Oh, it's going to be, you know, somewhere along, you know, somewhere out there, you know, it's just around the bend. And then it was not around the bend. And it was the next bend. Well, I think it's going to be just over that next bend. Well, there was a point where we were about six hours in where it still wasn't around the next bend. And it started getting dark. And the water started getting a little bit faster. And we could see, and all the banks were had barbed wire and huge cornfields, so we couldn't just get out and go to the road. And then at one point during this process, we um, were going to try to walk a little bit, and then one of my girlfriend's shoes fell off because she'd given them to my daughter who didn't think she needed river walking shoes. And the reason why her shoes fell off was because one of my sandals, which were pretty good sandals, they also fell off. Well, here's where we started getting a little bit nervous because the water was getting low and our tubes were starting to deflate. So we were thinking about the possibility of having to walk on the river. But the issue with that is there are rocks on the riverbed. So without shoes, it would have been very, very difficult. And we didn't have any water. I had plenty of cans of hard seltzer, but it was a little testy. And then at some point, my girlfriend brought her phone and she only had like 3% left. So to get out the Chattahoochee, even if we we're able to get there, eventually would have required us to do about another three to four mile walk from that location. Oh, it would have been about two miles with our tubes at eight o'clock at night in the dark. Now we could have done it. We weren't close to dying. But this was an example of reality being the best teacher. And it's not to say, now let me just illustrate, I think, higher education at its best. What is the goal of education? Well, it's to transform the mind, the body, of the spirit, and to compress the, the experiences of other and transform those universal those those universal principles that have been developed by others to young people because our time is finite. So the physicist does not have to go through the whole process that you know James Watt did inventing the steam engine, right? They can compress these experiences. We don't need to experience and develop electromagnetism on our own because that was worked out in the mid 19th century. We don't need to learn about what the equations of calculus or Laplace because those were worked out. It's to compress experience. 
It's also to give us a constellation of the experiences of others and help humble us and prepare us to enter into reality. That is college education at its best. And if you are, for the professors that think I'm just criticizing you, I'm not. And for example, with that boat, nav that navigation, they go to schools to become ship captains. And they are taught to compress those experiences, but ultimately they need to get the seasoning of actually doing the thing. And that is the education at its best. And the goal should be to make you more independent, more interdependent, um, to identify your strengths, to dive into those strengths, and to enhance your ability to interact in the world. Where so many of the uh, college professors, and let me call out the sociology department, do just the opposite. Yes, they teach you how to write and to think critically and to do solutions. But when they prescribe solutions for reality, it's so much worse. There's so many limitations. And in fact, they teach these things like circles of oppression and circles of victimhood. So students coming out thinking, oh, the world is a big, bad place. And there's these simple solutions that aren't being ignored. And what's their solution? Have the government pay for it. I got a great idea. I've learned about this in school. One, I'm a victim. I have no control over any of the things that I do. And then what's the solution for their great idea? If you guessed it, have someone else do it and have someone else pay for it. And let me use this example in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I don't know anyone who, I am the most inclusive person ever. I love the working class. I love everyone. I get a kick out of everyone. I kind of find everything. I wish I could take you on a journey of my mind, like the shit that like mind goes through. I love people. Um, and I love fraternité, égalité. I love the French, some of the principles of the French Revolution. I think they went too far. And I'm now, I think I'm more of a Burkean conservative than am I a Robespierre. But this whole question of equality. I love equality, égalité. I read at one point, I even ordered books. I even ordered books on Robespierre through my favorite philosopher, Slavoj Zizek. And I wanted to read about Robespierre, the, the Jacobins. I even at one point subscribed to the Jacobin magazine. I kind of was excited by these intellectuals trying to change society. But equality somehow got transmogrified into the word equity. And I didn't really, I didn't really know. Like I was a big French Revolution guy when I got to Iowa City. Egalité, egalité, which means that you're no better than I am. You're no worse than I am, but you ain't no better either. And I don't care if we have, you know. Again, David Brooks article. My my thing tomorrow. I'm gonna do another one on David Brooks. Then I'll stop beating up on David Brooks because I think it exemplifies him. Yeah, there's classes, and we're better than you. We're smarter than you. We are more, more than equal to you. We're better than you. We deserve special privileges. We deserve the best admissions. We are superior to you. And if you disagree with us, 
It's not that you have a good faith disagreement. It's that you don't understand the complexity of Earth, of our views. It's too complicated. I have a friend who I, I dearly love, but he always is, is basically kind of assumes that if you disagree with him, you don't understand. He gave me a lecture on uh, the origins of my alma mater, Luther College and higher education. And he didn't have a clue in terms of the cultural phenomena surrounding that institution that I have multi-generations of experience interacting with the whole culture, the philosophy, the history, and a granular detail. And of course he has his perspective. So my point with that is, is don't assume that if someone disagrees with you, it's because they don't understand or they're not smart enough or they're just a bunch of rubes, like these quote unquote self-described elites that the people that support Donald Trump, it's only because of resentment. It's only because they're angry. It's only because they don't understand. That's just not true. What my experience has been, my day job is I work with a lot of um, inmates, a lot of people of color, but it's people of all races. And I always blow them away how fucking smart they are. And some of the best results that I've got, I would, I would take them as a litigator over, over some dipshit that graduated from Harvard. I'm not joking. I mean, some are very good. And just through a combination of experiences, they find themselves where they are, but they can be very good. But there's this word called equity. And equity is something maybe that did come up on the college campus. Well, what is equity? Equity is kind of bullshit. It's not equality. Equity is, oh, if there's a different outcome, so you have a race, and I, we both start at the same location, and some guy runs faster than me, that must mean that he had some sort of advantage. So equity fo focuses on the end of the race, not the beginning of the race. You know, one thing I railed against, because I thought it was kind of naive, but basically this is where I land, you know, like, you know, the early 1990s conservatives, oh, we're for our quality of opportunity, yet ignoring all the structural advantages. So there is something to this argument. But equity, the whole assumption with equity is that if there's a different outcome in terms of a professional achievement or a, a physical achievement or a spiritual achievement, that must have been because of a structural disadvantage. And it had nothing to do with um, with the individual choices, decisions, and activities that that person does. So I'll just use an example, and I'll, I'll just refer to myself so people don't be like, oh my gosh, you just, you criticize other people while not, you know, looking in your own mirror. Hey, dude, I mean, if you think you're so great, your shit doesn't stink. I mean, oh, what the hell do you know? You know, so I'm going to do that with me. So reference alcohol. Hey, okay, I'm going to talk about alcohol. And no, I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I still enjoy, you know, like during the summer, you have a little little uh, Moscow mule when you're out in the out in the porch. You're, I think I'm going to do a brainstorming session where I'm going to have like three Moscow mules, and it's going to be really fun. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But so the deal is with alcohol. I don't give it my peak with alcohol. I was never like Nicholas Cage from leaving Las Vegas. 
I drank basically about a box of wine, not a box of wine, about a bottle of wine-ish, more on the upside of ish than the underside of ish. Let me just tell you that, Buck. I and mean, it, was, it was kind of a lot. My peak was about a bottle a day in the evenings. And I don't care. I was not at my top at that point. It is very difficult to do the type of cognitive work that I do, which is as a lawyer, if you're drinking a bottle of wine a night, it affects your sleep, your body. So the issue with that, I just use that as one illustration. Whatever outcome I have in my life cannot be optimized if I'm not getting my sleep, if I'm not eating the right things, if I'm not drinking a bottle of wine. And when you start auditing, we're going to do another reminder on the Epictetus audit. The things that you can control, it is astounding. So I don't care what equity or structural solution that you have, which was all... And the professors have this weird thing that they, they have this kind of belief that if there are these disparate outcomes among various groups, that has to mean that there's some outside explanation for that. And of course there are. I mean, you know, like if I grew up as, you know, Patsy Cline or uh, who's the Loretta Lynn, the coal miner's daughter, of course, the felt successful baby game. And I compare myself to someone who grew up, you know, Charles Schultz's son or, or whomever with all the money in the world. Um, yeah, there, there's an advantage there. And of course, there are certain advantages when you don't have to struggle to survive in these sorts of things. But the whole point of equity is, is that it's cooked up by the professors. And then they have, then they wring their hands about these different outcomes. And then what's the recommendation? You guessed it, more resources. Where are these things cooked up? By the professors who don't know, don't know shit about solving a problem. You would never want a professor Unless that professor, you know, sometimes there are professors that work in business for 25 years and just want to share kind of what they learn. Um, that would kind of be, you know, like whether it be law school or anything else, I would probably integrate more people that actually had experience in the relevant field. Um, pilots, usually pilots, obviously have to fly. In med school, doctors have to, have to actually practice medicine before they can teach it. You just can't have the sole theory. Let me also offer you, I think, another perfect mix of what I'm talking about in terms of what, what I'm conceiving of. The Mayo Clinic. I'm going to do a separate episode at some point in the Mayo Clinic. What made the Mayo Clinic so successful? It was nearly a perfect melding of the theoretical experience of medicine coupled with clinical experience in a way in which it, they were a big fish in a small pond and they and they obtained results in reality as it was, that was so ex fantastic that very soon that they were known throughout the world. And so it, we must remind ourselves constantly of the virtues of reality and the need for experience and back to the professors to communicate both the beauty and the hardship of life. That is the point. It is like you are getting people ready for service in the military, like boot camp. You try to replicate the conditions that soldiers are going to actually face. And so much of what you see in academia today, it's it's with people that don't have never actually had to do the thing. And they're making all these policy recommendations in which they don't have a clue. And in most cases, if you look at the outcome, it gets worse. Now, that can be 
not a huge deal in terms of, um, you know, the impact on society. But this is reaching a point where like DEI, I was at a, a legal continuing education and some young lawyers were encouraging firms to do diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I tell you what, obviously I'm supportive of that. But ultimately, law's fucking hard. You think you think most of you think you could have gone to law school? You probably could. But being a lawyer, it's fucking hard. It will, you know, it it will kick your ass. And in order to work for a firm, you got to be able to have great stamina. You got to have great intensity. You got to be able to white knuckle shit. It's tough. And so this notion that oh well, if there's different billing hours, different expectations, it's just sorry. There are some professions where you just got to dive in and swim. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that um, the life of the law is experience and not logic. And I think that is so true. Yes, you need logic, but there's only so much you can theorize. So when you listen to professors, you know, usually if you get a quote, they don't know shit. They don't know shit. And I wouldn't listen to them if you were litigating the case. I wouldn't fucking listen to one thing that they say. Because they don't know shit. They're all focused on, quote unquote, the law, but they don't know how the law applies itself in practicality. I had once professor of immigration once didn't have a fucking clue about how bonds were, what the most important issues were for the actual clients, how to get out of detention. So let me circle back here and, and kind of bring this full circle, because a lot of you may be thinking like, oh my God, that this is just, you want to ban all colleges? Colt says we should ban college. No, I'm not. I also think that there's sort of a um, a transitional stage that, that you need to go through where from 18 to 22, you can have this blossoming of your spirit that is seasoned in college where your ideas are questioned, they're formulated, and then you reaffirm and reemerge as kind of someone ready to take on the world. But you are, it's a challenge. Not everyone can do it. It's to prepare you for the intensity of life. That is what college is for. But let me go to the flip side and critique this and just offer a caveat because I am I'm more nuanced than I come across in the Rocky cast. You know, the book Moneyball by Michael Lewis. I think this is kind of the opposite of what, I'm, what I've been talking about the whole episode. And I'm aware of this. There is obviously reasons for the abstraction. There are abstractions that sometimes are not readily apparent through the observation of reality itself. So think about like the flat earthers. You look at the earth, it looks flat. So you would conclude that the earth is flat, right? If you were just looking at it, you'd never looked at anything else. Um, but let me give you a more recent example than the flat earther. Maybe that's not a good one. Moneyball by Michael Lewis. The whole point of that story is when the eggheads kind of took on the quote-unquote experienced people, like the scouts that have been in baseball their whole life. And the eggheads, the academics that look at statistical analysis to sports, were able to see things that weren't readily apparent to the seasoned, experienced scouts that have been in the um, industry their entire life. And there were abstractions that they couldn't see. And so there are these things called, what is an abstraction? And this is, I think, something where there is room for academia in terms of having the time, uh, not having to, you know, have the hubbub of everyday life, where they can kind of sit and contemplate. I think we all kind of need that um, to see things. What is an abstraction? An abstraction is something that is 
not readily apparent, but is in fact a one-to-one -one connection to reality itself. So think about Albert Einstein and the theory of relativity. He was able to see things that did not correlate with what was experienced by the mind uh, in terms of even time itself is relational to gravity and masses. That is abstraction. And it turns out the abstraction was real. In baseball, all of these scouts had developed opinions and theories over time based upon their experience, but were really overwhelmed when people that weren't part of that world could bring these abstractions, these statistical abstractions that were correlated to reality. And that is part of academia, is to help us to see things that are not readily apparent uh, to our um, eyes. And the other thing is, is maybe to help us to question things that we take for granted are real. And of course, the sophomore dorm uh, conversation is the existence of God. Trust me, if you go to dorm room, you're talking about whether God exists or not. Mostly it's a definitional discussion, you know, and you, because you have these things that are created, these existing beings arguing about whether they exist, but they do. So that, that's kind of maybe another podcast. But to also question underlying assumptions um, in terms of whether they exist using things like the Socratic method that can be taught in school and can be developed in school and can be enhanced through interacting with other incredibly smart people. So circling back Moneyball, I think, is an illustration of the limitation of an overly hard emphasis on experience as opposed to the theory of it. Right. There, so you need both. But here's the thing. You need to have an acute awareness of the limitations of both. See what I'm saying here? And so when I listen to professors give policy prescriptions, I'm not saying there's no value there. But if you look at the track record, like I would not. If I was trying to solve a social problem in a city, for example, I would not convene Harvard, Yale, sociology professors. Because keep in mind, some of the things that they express are not, they even they know they're not really related to reality, but they have to filter what they can say given their own toxic milieu that they exist in. So they're gonna they're gonna adopt diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, and in the process, not do anything that actually gets the job done. I mean, some of these professors talk about abolishing the police department. And supporting this kind of radical nonsense. So I there are limitations to both. And if you're looking for a, I think, a philosopher that I think most accurately can give us both a theoretical as well as a as well as a practical exposition of reality, I commend you the work of Nassim Taleb. I'm gonna try to do some podcasts on Nassim Taleb. Um again, I'm sure. My synthesis, he, he's kind of an asshole, which is why I love he, He's hilariously funny. Um, he represents kind of the best kind of convergence. Uh, he's a PhD in mathematics, I think, from a Parisian university. But he was also an options trader in New York for like hundred, like 10 years, 20 years in New York. So he's kind of this perfect synthesis of theoretical abstraction meets reality. He probably weighs more heavily on reality than he does on the theory, but he's clearly an intellectual he reads all these sorts of books and he, he's one of these guys that you could just get a pen 
to read the works that he cites and then read those words. And you could do an entire college curriculum based upon one book. That's how good he is. Kind of like Marx, by the way. Before Marx takes on all of his prescriptions, he cites all these philosophers in the Western tradition. He read them all. Adam Smith, David Ricardo, not Ricky Ricardo, David Ricardo. He was big in neoclassical economics, you know, um, you know, uh, classical economists are like, oh my God, David Ricardo. Oh, it's kind of like Jeremy Bentham. Oh, they like have an orgasm every time they hear those two names. Um, but but he is one of these types of guys. I think he both most accurately summarizes kind of the convergence between the two. So that's kind of this particular um, podcast. I, I hope I conveyed what I intended to convey. Um, you know, because here the other punchline is with philosophy, you know, the critique of, you know, you're like Uncle Earl, like, oh, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? Eh, eh, fuck. Eh, Earl, that's, that's, that's bullshit. I ain't going to study no philosophers. One of the interesting things about philosophy, though, that I find very interesting is how actually relevant it is. You know, in terms of Thomas Kuhn, the theory of science, looking at outliers, underlying phenomena, Socrates to be able to ask questions rather than provide answers, Karl Popper, the question of negative falsification, you know, this question of, you know, David Hume, what do you really know when you're making your decisions? Um, you know, these are actually, I've actually found them to be actually very, quote unquote, practical, because what does even the word practical mean? What practical means in the way that people use that term are, does the idea link to reality? That's what practical means. Well, that's what abstraction is. Both of them are attempting to um, link to reality as it is. And I do think in terms of piercing the abstraction, pretty much the only way you can really form abstract thoughts is to have that time and to read the books so that you, the books are the key to get into the land of the abstraction and to interact with other people that are reading books. The only way to really understand the practical, you know, that is the more immediate, the more readily apparent is to actually experience reality as it is and to get that seasoning. Like I, I have more knowledge about tubing based upon actually doing it rather than the idea of tubing. Well, that's it for this episode of the Rockney Cast. I'm going to do, I think I'm going to do one on Eric Bianami and The Archer. We're trying to connect those two. I think that's going to be a good one. Um, I'm also going to do another one on David Brooks. And I promise that's going to be the last one that I'm going to do. But it kind of irritates me, this whole, you, you just don't understand. Like, like, you can't, you know, I always assume that, that if people, you know, during the pandemic, there was a really good um, discussion on, you know, give, give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, they're all going through a lot. So don't, don't just assume that if someone disagrees with you, it's because they're ignorant. Don't make that assumption. That, that's assume that they're going through their shit. Now, at some point, I mean, shit, if there's some guy out in the street corner, you know, letting his balls hang out, there's only so much I'm going to give him. Like, oh, what what are they going through? Like, I don't give a shit. Get get them out and get, get, them, get, them, get them out of my sight. So I have my limits to that. But, but do give people the benefit of the doubt. And this whole thing about Trump voters is like, oh, they're just ignorant and resentment. They can't actually form any rational opinions. That is precisely why they're basically like, yeah, go fuck yourself. I don't give a shit what you think of me. They're just going to go ahead and do that. Um, and I think that's kind of the essence of that. So we'll do on uh, David Brooks. Um, 
Eric Bianiwa. I think this is going to be a good one. You're, you're going to like this one. I think I'm going to probably do that on Saturday. I think tomorrow we're going to do the David Brooks. And then on Saturday, we're going to do the Archer and Eric Bianami. So friends, if you've made it with me this long, eventually I'm going to start getting my recommended pitch at the beginning of the podcast. But do, do recommend this to other friends, enemies, your mom, your dog, your cat. Um, you know, if there's a homeless guy, tell him to go listen. You give him some money, go tell him to listen to Rocky Cast and change his life because he's going to learn something. He's going to have fun. He's going to develop a reading list. He's going to learn how to think critically, just like a class. I went to some of these classes where I learned the, how to think critically. And I think I can, but, you know, never know. Maybe I'm just full of bullshit. That could be a possibility too. And I, I don't discount that. So friends, infinite gratitude to each one of you for tuning in. I know that you have a lot of choices and the fact that you've made it with me this far means a lot to me. And we're going to continue putting out this high, high quality content. And so just until you and I meet again next time on the Rockney cast. <laughs>